It's been called the perfect screenplay. And we'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog The Magnificent Show? Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Thanks for coming. I'm Matt Napo. That's that's Adam Lippy over there. Hello. I got to be backwards here. That's and we got to do something a little bit different on the podcast tonight. Uh, basically, tearing apart a classic film, uh, Siskel and Ebert style. Uh, Adam will be playing uh, the part of the the guy who knows a lot of. He's a, a independent filmmaker and film student, film historian, and I'll be playing the part of the dumb guy for uh, you acting students out there. I am, will be combining a little bit of method uh, and just some natural instinct I have for the part. I have prepared. I've done some, you know, ride-arounds with some dumb guys. I, I, ha- I actually happen to have a uh, wealth of dumb guys at my disposal, which I could study from. So I'm sure my role tonight will be quite inspirational to you. The film we will be looking at is called The Apartment, and uh, it's a classic film from 1960, directed by Billy Wilder, I believe written by Billy Wilder. Written, produced, and directed by Billy Wilder. He won an Oscar for all three, one of the first time that ever happened. Um Sorry, you were going to say? No, I was going to say uh, it's been called the perfect screenplay. Uh, and I've heard it mentioned that, that in probably about 15 clips I've watched in the last week. The perfect screenplay and the perfect movie. Uh, so I want to get your opinion on that once we get rolling into it. Uh, but continue with uh, your description of the history of the film and all that stuff. Well, I wanted to get into a sense of Billy Wilder. So I'm Adam Lip, if you don't know me. I, I'm a writer, producer, director. Wait, wait, don't kill me. I also used to be a film critic. Uh, so if you're prepared to be bored to death, this is where you start. Um <laughs> Uh, so Billy Wilder uh, was born in Austria, uh, and he was a journalist and also a dancer uh, in Berlin. Um, and uh, he was the journalist who would do things like he'd go uh, get pictures of a victim's family to put in the paper, so he'd have to go talk to them. Um, and I think that prepared him very well to become a, a sort of a, a filmmaker of his style, which is lots and he wrote tons and tons of screenplays at a, quite a clip, and then you know, would just, uh, you know, the way his stuff worked is as long as it was dead set, what we were going to do as long as, long as rehearsals were done and we, we finalized what the script was going to be, that's, that's what they went with. And because he was sort of adaptable because he had to do this kind of lascivious job, he was prepared to write on all sorts of subjects and to write quickly, which is what journalism teaches you how to do. Um, he was there was a quote I found where he's he was focused on the unsavory aspects of American life, which was odd that he wrote all these screenplays, but he actually never typed anything. When he worked with partners, he wrote with uh, uh, worked with Lee Brackett and eventually I A L Diamond. The other guys would type. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought you were going to tell me he wrote it all longhand. Those would be. Well, are you kidding me? I, <laughs> I wrote it out on. Well, he wrote he wrote the, he'd, he'd write certain things down, but there was it was for, for someone who's known as someone as uh, a dictatorial as he was. He he was uh, he worked you know with partners very well. I mean, his first script was written in the twenties, and it was with uh, Fred Zinnemann, who later made um, From Here to Eternity and High Noon and um, uh, Day of the Jackal. And Robert Sidemack, 
Um, and those are like, you know, all in, in uh, Paris, they made this, this film. Um, and uh, that's what, uh, so he worked in conjunction with lots of film, lots of other writers because he worked well with others, which is not what you would think when you hear him talk and he sounds like, you know, a standard uh, German dilettante when he speaks. Cause yeah. I know you mentioned that uh, you had an issue kind of understand, not quite understanding and following what he was saying some of the time in some of the interviews in the background. Um, but yeah, I thought it was funny that I learned that he didn't type, but, um, but yeah, he was always willing to revise and revise until shooting. In fact, on the apartment, Shirley MacLaine said in one of these documentaries that they only had 30 pages, you know, done when they started shooting and then they just kept revising. Now, I don't know if I necessarily believe that because this script is really tight. Like there, there are things, jokes that are set up that explode an hour later or, you know, little bits over and over and over that keep happening. Um, and it's remarkable, of course, how dark this movie is and how perceptive it is about um, life, at least at that in that period, while working within the confines of what was known as the Hayes Code, um, which was the sort of censorship that was occurring at the time. And while this previous movie, Some Like It Hot, um, uh, did not actually uh, get passed by the Hayes Code at all, and he just went with it without it, which was unique at the time and was because of what it was about, it was about homosexuality and you know being a transvestite and all this other stuff. So uh, that was a movie that kind of opened up the idea of ignoring the Hayes Code, and so the apartment could push a few more boundaries than some of the other uh, films uh, could at the time. In fact, one of the interesting things is, despite being um, so, Wilder fled um, Germany in uh, right before Hitler took over in '33, and moved, made some stuff in Paris, and then moved to Hollywood. Um, although initially he actually moved to Mexico, he had to wait until he could get his visa sorted and just waited until for six months or something in Mexico and then went to Hollywood to write, to write movies. And he was very inspired by Ernst Lubitsch, which was, um, uh, a guy who made shop around the corner and, um, uh, to be or not to be heaven can wait. But, but while there's big breakthrough was on, um, Ninochka, which was directed by Ernst Lubitsch. So it was like his dream come true. But the the point I was making about Wilder is he was, uh, you know, fled Germany uh, because he was Jewish um, and a lot of his family was killed, uh, you know, much later, you know, like about 10 years, you know, about 10 years later. Um, and he uh, has this, you know, be because of the, the time period, I guess he was lucky that he was successful um, because you would think if there was ever a guy who would be caught up in the red scare or mccarthyism it would be wilder um especially like he was you know he pushed the envelope like crazy um uh he his thought about america was like everything is about you know more and more and more he was he was both he, he he enjoyed angering both capitalists and communists but something like the apartment which could not be more anti-capitalist if it tried is basically showing you the evils of capitalism i guess he kind of lucked out that he made it the same year that the the blacklist was broken by Kirk Douglas um, by putting um, uh, Dalton Trumbo's name on Spartacus. It's the same year that the apartment came out. Right. Um, sorry, you're going to say I don't want to do. I don't want to do all the talking. But go no, ahead. I, I get it. Uh, there's a couple of things you said in there. First of all, you said it was dark, and I, I think you mean emotionally, but also quite literally, the way it was shot is is pretty dark too. So yeah, it's shot, yeah, it is. It's uh, it's shot by a guy who shot film noir. Like it's the director of photography also shot Laura, which is one of the great film noirs ever. 
is that intentionally to, to be, because the con, because the story is although it's a romantic comedy it is dark and so was was the idea to kind of use that cinematic approach uh to kind of um complement the, the darkness of the subject matter i think what he does and we'll get into it I'll, we'll we'll talk through some clips um i think what he does masterfully is is uh, blend tones because there's no reason that this movie should work just none because the first 40 minutes is farce and then it becomes darker and darker and darker. And then he moves between farce and melodrama and pathos. And you just like, there's just no way this should ever function. And there's a, there's a way that there's a reason he gets away with it. And, um, and I'll get, I'll get into it in a minute, but um, I think not just that the movie is dark, but like specifically the, the apartment itself is dark. Uh, When we get, when we talk later, there's a clip I sent you on Facebook where someone on uh, the website Mubi has taken all of the actors out of the uh, the apartment itself and just show you what the apartment itself looks like. They have literally digitally removed it, and it's fascinating right. because it just it's this eerie, empty thing, and it's obvious that they shot it to look also like film noir. So you have this sort of unsettling feeling, this isolation in that apartment. So I think it's all it's both literally and and metaphorically dark in the themes and the ideas, but also literally because of the way that it was shot. And I think he chose this guy in particular for that reason. I mean, Wilder had made, you know, one of the best uh, film noirs ever made at that point already, which is Double Indemnity. Um, And he liked to move between like something like The Lost Weekend, which is dark drama uh, about an alcoholic, and then something more broad, like um, Some Like It Hot, and then somewhere in between, which is Sunset Boulevard. Um, and But he, he mastered tone. I mean, if you watch something like I, what I wanted to talk about specifically was uh, after Sunset Boulevard, he had a lot of leeway because that had done so well. And he made a movie called Ace in the Hole, which is one of the best movies I've ever seen, honestly. I don't know if you got a chance to did you get a chance to watch that. Yeah. Um, I, what did you think of that? Uh, I thought it was a great movie. I don't, you know, I try to look at things as like, would could would it still be a great movie if it came out today? I'm not sure it would be. It just feels like, it feels very dated to me. Like there's 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 no way that I I mean you're you're a, a different kind of breed and you're not that young. But if if I was 20 years old watching that movie, I it wouldn't hold my attention for five minutes. I and I could is it is, is it the pace? Because what he he's tricky with the pace. Yeah, that's the pace. What, yeah, he's. He's tricky with it because the first maybe half hour is a little slow, uh, and then it's just it just tricks you. Like you, something happens, and then all of a sudden you're like, "Oh God!" Like what just? Oh, now we're we're now we're in the the meat of it because that right. movie was so cynical in 1951 when it came out that everyone hated it. It's like this is so dark. If anybody hasn't seen Ace in the Hole, I highly recommend it. But it's about a a reporter um, played by Kirk Douglas who's uh, on the skids and is in New Mexico and can't get a job anymore because he's been flushed out of every city. And he um, gets his job at this local New Mexico paper and he wants a big story and and he can't find one. And he essentially creates a story. Um, And then there's a guy who's uh, buried in a, in a cave and he stretches this out as long as he can to the detriment of the guy there, just so he can play this out and get one of his old jobs back in New York. (laughs) <laughs> and it is so dark and cynical. And you and he keeps thinking everyone that he's talking to is a rube, and they're not. And every person that he talks to in a most condescending fashion snaps back at him, in, but with a smile. Um, 
and he's supposed to be like the dark cynical one. And really he's, he's on the same level as they are. And in fact, sometimes they're a little smarter than he is. And I think that it would play well. The only difference is that the, maybe the, the last 20 minutes would be a little bit more explicit about what, what's going on. I think um, they were, they were a little, they had to shield it a little bit. Some of the, the, the conclusion is a bit uh, muzzled by, by the limitations of the, of the censorship at the time. I think that would play a bit differently and a little yeah. bit less melodramatically. Um, I don't know if it would be different because now it would seem like, oh yeah, that's, that's exactly how cynical the press should be and how they behave. And, you know, it's basically about, you know, tabloid journalism. Yeah, but the uh, short short attention span, a short attention span now uh, is like if you're not if you don't really get the thing moving in the first five or ten minutes, people are just gonna zone out. I know I was. I was like, well, yeah. well, there's a great joke right at the start where he's 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 sitting in a car and we don't know why, and then like he he signals to somebody and you realize that he is being towed. Right. And he tells the guy towing him, hey, yeah. I'll get out right here. And I was with it like right there, right at that moment. Um, and um, but, yeah, the whole movie is so dark um, and and cynical about everything. Um, but it takes its time. And what I wanted to what wanted to mention is one of the ways that Wilder controls things. Um, if you could play the clip I have of Ace in the Hole. Want me to play it now? Yeah, play it. Okay. Um, can I talk over it or is the sound going to be? No, I think you can fuck over it. Let's see. Um, so what I wanted to say about this is you'll notice this was all one shot. And the important part here of doing this all in one shot is that um, it means that the studio can't come in and recut anything because he's doing no master shots. It's all this one long shot. Gotcha. And, and he's she's entered and we've got and we've gone all the way across the room and what Wilder liked to do was get his and now now the clip's going to be over because now we finally saw the cut but the reason I wanted to show that clip was um, you saw that whole thing play out in one shot no cutting in no cutting out um, it it allows him control that no one can recut it it allows uh, all the information um, uh, in in this one shot he doesn't rely on close-ups he's just allowing the whole thing to play out in front of you and that's sort of unique in that most other filmmakers would cut, 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 give us a close up. Let's see what Kirk Douglas is typing. Let's see what she's doing. Let's watch her walk. Let's, and when she goes around the corner and she goes to the other side and she pours him a drink, you would never see that all in one shot anymore. And it's part of it is because he liked to shoot quickly. He doesn't like to draw attention to himself with the camera works. There's never any fancy camera work in any of his movies because he just wants this be the story, the story, the story. You see that in your movie, uh, and you would see a, a little bit of that in uh, – you see that in Woody Allen movies, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's about where you, you'd see it. Adam Lippy and Woody Allen are the only people still using that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I don't think I can turn that off the volume or even turn down the volume on any of these clips. So Okay. All right. So then I'll try to talk over it, and then and then if I can't be heard, I can't be heard. Because right. the other thing I wanted to show – I wanted to show the development. See – in Ace in the Hole, he was shooting that um, in the aspect ratio of like television, which was what the aspect ratio of the time one three three, and he didn't shoot a movie in Cinemascope, which is more cinematic, until um, the Seven Year Itch in the fifties, and then the next movie he shot Cinemascope was The Apartment. But I was going to show if you show the 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 clip that I've called um, The Apartment, uh, what's what's it called? Something like um, Inside the Apartment or something like that. Inside the Apartment. You want me to show yeah. that now? Yeah, I wanted to show that. What I want you to pay attention to here is he's he's using this whole cinemascope frame and this woman is talking the uh, next door neighbor is talking to him. Oh, We've never nice. cut. We've just seen we've been able to experience oh, the entire uh, hallway, which sets us up for later. 
And then we're setting up plot points and stuff like that. But he's doing it all in one shot. Again, we have no need to cut to the woman here or close-ups on Lemon. He trusts the audience enough to follow it. So now this is the first cut we've seen in the scene. And now he's in the apartment. Now this is the first time we've been inside the apartment. And he's going to walk around. We're going to see everything in it. And he's using this wide frame and still moving the camera to show us everything inside that's going to be... Uh, uh, everything we're going to understand throughout the rest of the movie that about half of it is spent inside this apartment. One half of it is spent in the office. Love so again, it. we have not cut at all. It's been 45 seconds inside the apartment. We're seeing the whole thing. You would never you would never do this. Let's a guy in. Still, no cut. And this is the first time they're actually going to cut. like to complain, but you were supposed to be out of here. There, that's the first cut. You can stop the clip. Okay. Yeah, you know, uh, and you see Lemon in the in the movie in the mirror a little bit, and it looks as though he they, he was expecting uh, Wilder to yell "cut!" There, I mean, because if you look at it, he's he's not really uh, focused; it's still acting. It's kind of, right. he thinks he's out of this shot, but he's a little bit in the mirror. There. Right, but but normally you would never do that, and he can get two or three pages done in one shot, which is amazing. That's an amazing thought to get something that quickly and you know as long as you get the technical part of it right and you're not showing off you can get so much plot and so much dialogue out and people focus on that and they're not distracted by anything and as i said before it means because he's only shooting it from that angle and he's not just getting a master which would be just a wide shot which then you can cut in and in. he's not getting the close-ups he's just doing that right. so you so that means that no matter what he does whatever he delivers that's what they're gonna that's what they're gonna have to how they're, how they're gonna cut the movie now he said uh, I don't know if it's true. It might be an apocryphal story. You never know with a lot of this stuff. Uh, that uh, a week after they were done shooting, they had a cut that was already ready because there were no choices. Because he he would call, okay, I want this take, this take, this take, this take, and all, it's naturally just cut it together, done in a week. Right. Uh, would you have a rough cut in a week? I don't know. That seems especially something as delicate tonally as this. I don't know if you could really do it that way. That might be a bit difficult to to do. Maybe maybe he was just saying that for effect. I don't know. Right. Uh, what uh, strikes me uh, about it is, um, you know, all that takes a lot of planning. So it's got to take a lot of rehearsal, right, to get that right. And the cameraman's got to rehearse all those moves. And, and it's got to be delicate. And one, one screw up can fuck up the whole, whole movie, right? Uh, yeah, well, the- that, that shot, sure. But what Wilder liked to do, he loved to shoot uh, in the studio. He did not like to shoot... Um, uh, on location at all so you can control everything so you you know you can set up your tracks you you know how much space you have you know all that interior is a set so you know anything that's on the outside in new york city which isn't very much in the movie right. is, is rarely going to be something so enormous and big and because you could do this stuff so quickly it would get you involved and i think that's also what accounts for the easy tone changes because right. he keeps you in this he keeps you in uh what's going on there's no tricks there's no, okay, I'm going to cut to this. Your mind is focused. So if something subtle happens in the dialogue, your mind is going along with it. You're just paying attention. And I think that accounts for how he can subtly sneak in a, a tone change because getting a farce to go into a melodrama, that's really hard to do because farce is not meant to be taken seriously. It's like when, you know, once the doors slam and there are you know the misunderstandings and all the things that are natural in a farce that have to happen, you would, there's no way you're going to take this literally. I mean, the, the famously, Pauline Kael said that Tootsie was the only believable farce. Right. And well, I understand. 
Go ahead. Uh, uh, just it's well, as you're saying that it strikes me that there, in my lifetime, I have seen a new genre of film uh, emerge called dramedies, romantic dramedies, which is a romantic comedy that gets a little dramatic at points, and uh, it, it seems to me like everybody's trying to recapture that whole idea. Not as you know mel- melodramatic as uh, as some of this, because it. it in, on, at some level, this, the whole story is kind of heartbreaking. It's just a really sad tale about people. Uh, I don't think most of the dramedies go that far, but uh, right. it, it, is that... And, I, and, and for this, I wouldn't even say that this movie has a happy ending. I don't think it's happy at all. No, they got two people out of work <laughs> really, uh, are struggling to find the best in each... And I hate to blow the ending. To find, find well, we're, we're, happiness we're gonna... with each other. We're gonna spoil that. We're gonna spoil the movie, and there's yeah. no way around it because right, I really yeah. want to talk about what the ending means. Okay, um, but go ahead. What were you, what were you saying? Uh, I, it just seems to me that it was was that genre. You think that uh, new genre of film that you know I see it all the time now. Dramedy, uh, romantic dramedy. It's not a romantic comedy. It's a romantic dramedy. It's got some comedy. Some some. Do you think that all grew out of Wilder's style for Tom? I, um, I it's. It's hard to know if it came. I don't know if it came out of this because this was sort of his last truly successful movie. He made a number of movies after this, right. most of which don't work all that well. Um, one of which I tried to watch was called Kiss Me Stupid. Um, and I made it about half an hour through. And it was this very broad, uh, irritating joke about Ray Walston having an, a wife who's too attractive for him. <laughs> and they just did that for half an hour. And um, it, 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 it he couldn't get the farce going because it was the joke was so repetitive and like he was such an off-putting person in every way that you could never believe that she would have been interested in him in the first place. So, (laughs) and it was, he made that maybe like two movies later. Um, So it's such a delicate balance. I don't know if you, because the notion of just a comedy and a drama is, is one thing, but here like this is, you know, uh, the, the apartment is a, you know, who's was one of the, one of the titles was something like who's been sleeping in my bed was one of the alternate titles. Mm-hmm. And that tells, I mean, that's a terrible title, but that tells you like kind of like, you know, like that early sixties, like how to murder your wife was a movie that I think Jack Lemon is in right. or, you know, how to sleep with, like they had all these kind of kitschy sexually, uh, you know, uh, half innocent, half, you know, perverse titles that often would just be kind of empty movies. And right. I don't know if the dramedy, cause when I think of like, Oh, a dramedy, I think of when, uh, Judd Apatow was talking about when he was doing the show Undeclared, which was his sort of follow-up to Freaks and Geeks. And he said, uh, Freaks and Geeks was a little easier to do than Undeclared because when Freaks and Geeks wasn't funny, we could just say it was drama. Right. Uh, <laughs> but but Undeclared is just comedy. So you couldn't, if it's not yeah, funny. This then, is then like comedy matter. and tragedy. <laughs> the apartment, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'll let you continue with that, but I'm gonna. I don't know if you want to answer this now or wait. No, no, no. Until later. The the commentary about it being a perfect script because I do have a couple of, of issues with there, the script. There, there are some problems. In fact, one of them is right away because you introduce voiceover and then you never go back to it. Right. And there's certainly a better way to deal with that. Right. Um, and I think some of the going back and forth between farce and um and uh, seriousness does not always work well i think the stuff with fred mcmurray is great um uh i think some of the stuff with the bosses is a bit cartoonish um i don't know if they pull that off completely i wasn't bored but right. i don't think i don't think it's it's a it's a bit silly at times and also the notion of like he never thought they'd get another key is a bit silly to be honest right. with you. yeah 
The, the couple of things, and it's content-wise that about the script that kind of make me say, well, that doesn't feel right. That First of all, the idea of the apartment being there. You've got four executives. Why not get a, a hotel room? Uh, you got a guy. I, I have an answer. I have an answer for that. Oh, okay, but I, I was going to – next follow-up is the guy who can throw around $100 bills. Hotel rooms in New York City uh, were cheaper than that. So go ahead. What's the answer to that? So here's th- – this was covered in something I was watching – there were in New York, there were things called short stay hotels that were exactly for this purpose. But the vice squad caught on and then they would come in and like arrest people if they weren't married. Wow. And okay. so so this was absolutely necessary in a way. And since the movie is based on uh, something that actually happened, a couple things. So the first was uh, Billy Wilder saw a brief encounter which is a David Lean movie from the forties in which a, a couple is, you know, who are married or having an affair with, you know, other people. And then there's a scene where they use a friend's apartment to have sex. And Wilder thought, Oh, that's what, what happened? What about that guy? Like, why, why don't we know anything about that guy? And that's, you know, interesting in a sense, but he knew he couldn't make that in the forties when David Lean had made brief encounters. So he had to wait because it would be kind of dirty to, to, you know, the guy who's lending out his apartment. But the other thing was, um, uh, Walter Wanger, the producer, shot. Um, I think his name was was a, a an agent named Kirkland Lang who was sleeping with his wife, and he was he was borrowing someone's apartment in order to do it. Right. And what Wanger actually got off uh, was found not guilty because of like you know something like crime of passion. So okay. nothing <laughs> nothing happened despite despite shooting a guy in cold blood because he's you know he's, he was having sex with your wife. Right. Um, so it's not as far fetched as you as you might think. But right. I, I agree. But then the next part of that was why not? You know, if you had these four executives, why wouldn't they just get an apartment? Apartments weren't as expensive as they were too in those days. So that I'm sure four executives uh, springing for money uh, for an apartment would have probably made a lot more sense rather than take some guy we don't know. We don't really. And, you know, low-level employee and take his apartment by force or whatever they did, coerced him into doing that. And then the other part was, uh, oh, well, then Fred McMurray, instead of, you know, his other option was to drive all the way to Atlantic City. It's like, come on, there's got to be something between New York City and Atlantic City for for getting laid pretty quick, even in 1960. And uh, the other part was where the executive pulled up to the apartment in a Volkswagen. And I thought, 1960, a Volkswagen, an executive wouldn't be driving a Volkswagen <laughs> in New York City. Well, maybe they were saving money. I mean, you know, if we, if we, if you f- see, some might say, oh, it's very expensive to live in New York City. Now, I grew up in New York City. I know my mother found an apartment with like three other people not far from where this movie takes place. Right. Um, uh, you know, on. Uh, Central Park, no, on Columbus Avenue in the 90s. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming we're supposed to think that he lives uh, about Columbus Avenue in the 60s, right? Right. Something like that, right? And she's told me what, what it cost for rent, and it was not that bad. And assuming he's making, say, the equivalent of 45 a year, he it, probably could afford that. He's that taking home like, $96 a week. That's what he's yes. taking. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, assuming you know, that, that it was a, you know, cause the immigrants who owned the building and it was an old 1900 building, like, you know, all this stuff that they drop in, in the, you know, to, to criticize the, the opening narration is one thing, but you did still need to get out the, all that information, which does play into how everything right. happens. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always give a little bit of leeway in a farce cause something has to be absurd. Does it make any sense 
that Dustin Hoffman dresses as a woman and nobody notices. No. Not, not particularly, but <laughs> but those scenes are funny and they work and they're believable in the moment. So you just have to kind of forgive it a little bit. Yeah, I know. Um, the only reason it bothers me is because I was when they when I heard so many reputable people calling it the perfect script i'm looking for there has to be no holes in here and i and i looked out because i watched it four times and i said there has to be a, uh no mistakes here nothing that would make me second guess anything in this movie for it to be perfect and it's not the fact that jack lemon has a remote control for his tv uh in 1960 is i mean obviously a wired one but still that that's a that's a high ticket i only elvis had that <laughs> i mean that wasn't really much of a a remote control, but, <laughs> but I guess he only had a couple of channels. I did like that dig is that he just keep going around and like yeah. there's commercial followed by commercial, followed by commercial, right. followed yeah. by cowboy movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'll let you continue now. I, now that I've uh, interrupted you. No, 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 uh, no. It's all right. I mean, I had all this stuff, but I don't, I don't want to just dictate um, what, where we're going to go. But one thing I wanted to say is I find this notion of, 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 of making a movie about a guy like who would normally be an extra in another movie, like the guy whose apartment it is in Brief Encounter, to be fascinating. Um, I love that idea. It's a, it's a very Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead sort of idea um, where you have these people who, who, you know, we'd never learn about them and now you're going to make a whole thing about them. I find that really interesting. So I started writing down other ones. Like basically Amadeus is that, you know, uh, what what is um, – uh, you know, uh, the, otherwise it'd be a biopic about Mozart. It wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be about this other guy who's really the focus of that film, who's just sort of a footnote in, in Mozart's life. But that's what I'm always like. Oh, that you know that there's a there's a great movie called Cold Blooded uh, with Jason Priestley. It was a guy who kind of graduates from dopey guy who works for the mob to hitman. Um, and how does how does he move up the ladder? Or um, something like uh, a, a great film called Mike's Murder with Deborah Winger, which I watched again recently, uh, yeah. where she is the lover of a, a an occasional lover of a guy who who gets murdered in a, in a in a drug deal gone wrong, and then we just like he's in she's in and out of his life like infrequently, but we see it from her perspective, and I'm always fascinated by okay the person who would normally be ignored in a genre movie. I want to know about that. I mean, there's a movie out right now called Promising Young Woman that's kind of like that too. Which is it's also an excellent film. I don't know if you've heard of it with um, uh, yeah. um, well, I can't remember her name, uh, Carrie Mulligan, and she her friend is. Uh, it starts out to be uh, about her getting revenge on men who pretend to be good guys. It's related to the apartment in some way, um, and so she pretends to be drunk at a club, and then they take her home. Um, and then they attempt to sexually assault her, and then she just snaps to attention and goes, "Hey, what are you doing?" and and does that over and over and over. But then it turns out there's another ulterior motive because really it was her friend that was raped in, in college, in med school, and she's getting revenge on everybody. And then the movie makes some serious turns after that. Um, <laughs> and normally her character would be a minor point, the best friend of the rape victim who has no, um, you know, nothing other than just expository dialogue or just like, hey, it's not, I'm going to help you out, blah, blah, blah. But here she's the focus. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like how they're yeah. normally these people would be extras in other yeah, movies? Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard for me to think of an example. I was trying to think of an example of one that I could, pinpoint that happening and i can't come up with one i mean there are obviously um movies i could come up with that don't seem like well that that character should be the focus of the movie but it's not one of those where you talk about where if if in any other movie this would just be a 
a walk-on part or a you know a lineless somebody you, you you heard about in the story which really plays no big part in the story i can't think of a single example of that well that, then then I, for for those listening i also recommend american boy a great documentary by martin scorsese about the guy who sold uh, de niro guns in taxi driver um, cool. um and he made this documentary. Criterion put it out eventually, but it's on YouTube. And the entire part of Pulp Fiction, where they where they get where they have to wake up Uma Thurman right. with the drug needle, is yeah. almost word for word out of a story Stephen Prince is telling in American Boy. Wow. Um, and someone has on YouTube compared the two and showed you like you know every, but it's all it's almost word for word. I can't believe. <laughs> I mean, Tarantino is known as a, a we'll call him an homage artist. Uh, right. But but the thievery was so blatant when you see that movie. But it's also a great documentary. I don't and know. If it's it's thievery necessarily when you take it. You know, you're fictionalizing something that really happened. I don't know. If, I don't know. What, uh, that's I, rec- I recommend you watch the side by side. He's like taking every detail. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's not. I just woke up somebody who OD'd. It's like, and we used the needle, and we had to do this, and we had to do all yeah. of these things, and he's going through it, and you're like, "Yep, okay." No, the, but American Prince is also very good, and they made a uh, American Boy is very good, and they made a follow up like 30 years later, like called American Prince, in which you're like, "I can't believe this guy's still alive," but. Wow. <laughs> There's, there's that element, but that's also on like Vimeo or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Billy Wilder was a pretty shy guy, uh, at least from I, I watched him accepting the Academy Award. Audrey Hepburn gave him the award for this movie. And he was talking like this the whole time. Like, like and it seemed like really shy and awkward about accepting the award. It was a kind of a long, boring speech for 1960 where they kept it pretty short. But he seemed like he. he he did not. He was really uncomfortable in that public. Well, he, he, he had practice. I think that might have been Oscars number like seven and eight already. Oh yeah, right. And, <laughs> and he, he had already he'd already won twice that night. I mean, so so it wouldn't be. Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, that's right. I forgot you, about you. Don't, you don't ever see the guy who wins for screenplay, producer, and director anymore. Like that just doesn't. Right. I, I, you'd have to look up if that's happened ever again. Okay. Um. um but like after that, he made one, two, three, and he made Kiss Me Stupid and The Fortune Cookie and um, The Front Page and Fedora, which if nobody has seen, it's not a great movie, but it's interesting because his his big um, hit initially was uh, Ninochka, which starred Greta Garbo. And Fedora is like, what if you made a biopic of Greta Garbo's hiding from society? Um uh, it's not a great movie. It's interesting though. It's William Holden, and William Holden always he had a fondness for Wilder, I think. But he said something like the, the quote was, "He had a mind full of razor blades," and I think that's sort of apt in terms of in terms of that. Um, what were we talking about? Oh, we talk, we we, we talked about broad farce. Um, Wait, before was, you go on with that, yeah. you, before you mentioned, uh, you know, the cinemascope versus the t- you know TV ratio, the four by three ratio was. Uh, I'm not sure if this was uh, the apartment was the first black and white to be uh, done widescreen cinemascope like that, or no? There had been other films that had been done in, in black and white, but it might have been because at the time uh, in 1960. And I can't. I don't, I don't know offhand which which other scope movies uh, were you know in the fifties and, and later. But there was literally a, a cinematography award, which I believe the apartment won for black and white. Right. They developed and a, a 
specific lens that would keep everything in focus in that wide frame, or you can control the focus and get soft or hard focus on everything if you wanted, which I believe that was the first time that lens was used to make that uh, cinema, you know, cinemascope uh, that crisp in focus and that controllable in focus. So, and which is remarkable considering how much information he's getting into into the movie. I mean, if you want to play that amazing opening scene, um, I, I've got another clip for you there. Um, uh, the the one called Big, Big, City? Big City. Yes. Yeah. All right, I'll play that. I'll, I'll unmute myself here while you do that. Work for an insurance company. Consolidated. So there's that opening narration I was talking about. But this shot, thirty-one thousand two hundred and fifty-nine employees, which is more than the entire population of uh, not just. We're going to cut to this next shot. Okay, now pause for a second. Pause this clip, Matt. Can you hear me, Matt? Yeah, I can't pause. There's no control on these things. So. Oh, all right, all right. Okay, well then I'll just describe the shot. But all I wanted to do was 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 explain that long office shot. Now, obviously, that was very influential on something like Mad Men, as this whole movie was. Uh, in fact, in Mad Men, there's an episode where they discuss having seen the apartment and they say something like um, it's between Roger and um, uh, the redheaded girl. Um, and Roger says, oh, yeah, I didn't I uh, I didn't believe the movie because the uh, the elevator girl, uh, the ele- the elevator person was was a girl. And also she was white, um, <laughs> um, which I guess would have been different in, in, in 1960. Maybe they all would have been black men. I don't I don't really know. Um, but uh, in that shot where he's got all those thousands of deaths and it looks like the biggest thing you've ever seen in the whole world, it's a shame you can't pause it because then you can get a sense of it. Right. Uh, Why don't we play it again now? That okay, sure, sure. I've worked for an insurance company, Consolidated Life of New York. We're one of the top five companies in the country. Our home office has 31,259 employees, which is more than the entire population of uh, not just Mississippi. I work on the night. Okay, here's a shot I was talking about. And if you look in the distance, you can't really tell, but it looks like there's thousands of deaths. And apparently what he did was the production designer. Okay, so that's, yeah, we got the idea. So that's pretty pretty much the end. Um, so what apparently he did was um, to, get, to give that perspective, and obviously that's all on a set, is the deaths get smaller and smaller and smaller the further you go back. And eventually he's got either children or little people in the desks. And then you go further and further back, the desks get smaller and smaller. And eventually they had puppets and Mary and on, on strings, marionettes, just to make it look like there's thousands and thousands of deaths when there's probably only like a hundred or something in like there. And you have this, um, this thing that's, I think emblematic of what, uh, while they were saying about capitalism, about how everyone just kind of a cog in the wheel, but Ace in the Hole specifically is basically about how to, um, you know, I want to get back to the big city. That's my goal. That's what's what I want to do. That's what I, my aim is. And the apartment is, well, now you live in the big city and this is how small you are. You have gone from big fish in small pond to uh, tiny fish in the ocean, like meaningless, basically. And that opening bit where he's saying there's 31,000 blah, 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 and the employees in the building, and you're like 31,000 people in this one building. And it's not the World Trade Center at the time. I mean, although that right. guy's realized, you know. Yeah, the um, building wasn't that big, which kind of surprised me. Uh, I was just looking at it this time I, mm-hmm. for the 90,000th time now. And I, I just looked at it and I was like, that doesn't look. Because I wanted to bring that up. The story itself, uh, I think he took some some serious leeway. You bring up the, uh, I think the, they were elevator girls because I think he was very, um, 
he did use some stereotypical guy. The shoeshine guy was a black guy, and mm-hmm. Fred McMurray just talked him the coin flippantly, like, you know, you don't matter. And then he was the janitors were all black guys. So I think at the time they were uh the the elevator operators were women. But the story about 31,000 people working for this big company, to me, uh, doesn't really fit with the times. I worked for a company that had 27,000 people in a building that was long. It was in Plainview, Long Island, not New York City, but it was much bigger than that building. And we didn't have all 27,000. We had maybe 10,000 in one building, but then we were spread across. In well, how, many, how, many, how many floors were you? On that, because I'm thinking of like if you had 40 floors of the World Trade Center, you could probably have 30,000 people, 30,000. Yeah, we we had only like seven floors in the building, but it was huge. It was it was a campus. But the the point is, you know, that building to seem like. 30,000 for one company in New York City at the time seemed like uh, like Billy Wilder was using that as exaggeration to drive home yeah. that point of because it might have been 10,000 people. Right. For but a, once you see that life. image of like yeah. how many people are in this one room and then, you know, they're on the 19th floor and maybe they got the whole building and maybe this building is 60 flights. I mean, we don't know. Maybe right. the top is the 27th. We don't know. Is that that could have been the Pan Am building? I'm not exactly sure what that would have been. Necessarily. Well, you, see, you see the top of the building in that clip. That's why I, I looked at it. Mm-hmm. I said, well, it doesn't seem that tall. <laughs> um, so well, I don't know how much. On. Go ahead. What's up? We can move on. I mean, I yeah. just to look yeah, at we, the things that look bother me about it. I know. Well, we're, we're nitpicking a little. <laughs> um, so uh, what I was what I wanted. I don't know if this the explanation about Wilder helped at the beginning, um, because I wanted people to understand um, the way that 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 he started and and like that he was so prolific in his screenplays that um that they initially didn't want him to direct he directed one movie in france and then he he'd written all these screenplays like one after the other after the other and then they gave him a movie to direct called the major and the minor which is kind of like a pre-lolita um uh, you know major and the minor like that's what it exactly what it sounds like wow. um uh story and it was a big hit and so they thought it was going to bomb, and then 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 they could just send him. Oh no, you're you're good. You can go right back to writing scripts. But it was a big hit. So then he continued to make movies, um, and direct movies, and that's what led to something like uh, Dublin Indemnity. And um, you know, Fred McMurray's the lead in Dublin Indemnity, and, and it it outlines something that is very key, I think, in Wilder's movies, in which um, like Ace in the Hole and like The Apartment, in which the protagonist is his own antagonist because they're like their own self-doubting antagonists. It's weird that he he sort of nails this down because Dublin Demi absolutely does this, Ace in the Hole does it. Even though you have sort of villains, really the villain is the guy's own anxiety and his uh, either his too much ambition or his anxiety about his ambition, about what he wants to do and about like sort of being in the wrong. Um, and I don't know like what that's emblematic of necessarily in his life or whether he was just because he worked with all these different kinds of writers that it was just, okay, this is a thing that I, that I think is interesting that I don't necessarily need to develop a huge antagonistic villain. I don't need a cartoon. Like Fred McMurray's the villain, but he's easily defeated. Right. So he, he's easily defeated by a secretary who's jealous. Right. He's easily defeated by, you know, uh, Jack Lemon no longer wants the key to the executive washroom. Um, and, so really, the, everything is built on Jack Lemmon being scared of, am I going to lose my, uh, you know, my job uh, by give, you know, if I if I push back, or for instance, when the doctor comes in later, how can he keeps up that ruse? Why do you think he does that? Uh, in your mind, 
Yeah, I didn't even question it. So, um, why? I don't know. I don't know. Why? I mean, I think he does it because he wants to keep the apartment, but we don't really know why. Because if the landlady finds out that he's been, you know, using it to to essentially, you know, be used as as, as a place where all these guys come over and say he'll be thrown out of the building. He doesn't want to lose the apartment, which of okay. course is yeah. feeding into itself in this weird way. I right. didn't have a problem with it at all because I realized, oh right, that's what we're really doing here is we're uh, saying that. He he's is he's all scared of like okay well I move up this ladder and what does he want when he gets up the ladder what does he get other than a key to the executive washroom right. which seems to be the biggest deal in the world like you know Fred McMurray doesn't even really care about what the work he's doing at all anyway he's just to be used to be honest with you now that you mention it I thought I I remember thinking it at the time why didn't he just tell the doctor what's really going on because uh, the doctor's not the landlord and I I would think you'd want you know you'd want a friend you could confide in and he's got nobody it seems like he's he's got no family he's got no friends he's got the he's got Shirley MacLaine and that's it uh but before we move on any further because you brought up Fred McMurray I think it's such a a weird enigma about him he was either the villain or a total goofy guy in every part he's ever played like he was either a heavy and a bad guy or just like this clown, you know, flubber and whatever the stupid right, absent-minded professor. And, and then my three, my three sons comes out like three months after this does, um, and runs for fifteen years or however long it was on. Right. Um, and and you would and he didn't want to take the movie because he had this contract with Disney and he didn't think oh they're gonna they're gonna fire me and and Wilder said they're not gonna fire you do they fire you when you when you took uh, double indemnity and he said no well, I actually got bigger because of that. And so he didn't, he, you know, the only reason it happened is because the actor they wanted to hire had a heart attack and died, uh, Paul Douglas. And and so, you know, McMurray, which who was who is perfect in the movie, honestly, like he yeah. he may be the best cast of anybody. Although, I mean, it's it's kind of a, it's maybe it's even because I think that Jack Lemmon is is perfectly cast because he manages to play things that are tragic and do them as goofy. Right. Because there's there's a scene where he is talking about his own suicide. And he shot himself in the knee. Right? He, yeah. When he shot himself in the knee, and it, <laughs> it's funny. And you're like, "How did you make this thing that is utterly tragic? How did you make this funny?" And it's just because he's underplaying, and it's because he's 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 not committing to that, that this is a horrible thing. This is just like an a, an event that happened, and he just plays the whole thing light. So it aids. He's really the the key to aiding between going between farce and seriousness because he effortlessly goes between it. Right. Um, in a way that that um, maybe that's what Wilder really took to him about. He Wilder said that he worked with basically he's the perfect actor, and as long as you basically don't put him in scenes where he's got to do have sex or be the romantic lead, he's perfect because he can do anything. Right. And I can kind of see that because in a way, what works about the movie is that like that Lemon is is like the opposite of what our version of masculine is. He's like he's like a beta, I guess, in in a sense. Yeah, um, Delta. <laughs> sure, uh, but while you're on casting, let me ask you about Shirley MacLaine because that mm-hmm. that one baffles me. Uh, I think she's adorable. Uh, she's great in it. She's absolutely perfect. Yeah, but it, it she's played the part of the girl every every executive wants to score with. They all they all kind of think that she's top shelf for for the the, the pickings around here. Right. 
but she doesn't look gl glamorous at all. She looks very downplayed, very pure, even though she has this dark side of her and has been obviously she, you know, the, and they both, I don't, maybe you can explain to me how this is three because they both do this at times in the movie three. Uh, how many guys were there before? And she says three, just three, but I think, I think she's, she's comfortable lying to herself by going, it's been three. Oh, oh because when, when earlier in the movie, when lemon was asked how many, she asked lemon, how many drinks he's had? And he said three. Right. It's like, what the hell's going on with the four and three stuff? I think it's both a joke, but in her case, because she's not drunk, she's basically saying it's been four. Gotcha. And I, I'm with the same kind of guy over and over and over. Gotcha. And, and that's, I, but, I took it that way, that, that she, she is comfortable, you know, this is the lie that I tell, it's really four. But she wouldn't be the prize, you know, the the, the prize out of the 30,000 employees uh, for the hot chick, which it seems the part that she's playing is the one that every, you know, way to go, buddy boy. You got you got Fran. Wow. And that's like a, so that that part is confusing. I agree. She's great in it. Uh, she's just, you know, you've as as a, a viewer. You mm -hmm. fall in love with her. She's just like, wow, you know, you totally, you, your heart goes out there. You empathize with her character completely. She's perfect for it, but it's an odd sense of. Well, but I mean, I think the answer is that she's always saying no and that she pushes back when, they, when, they, okay. when, in that, in the, in the, when we first see her, she gets smacked in the ass right. by, by the boss with the newspaper and he actually didn't happen. And like, then she says later and she pushes back and says, I'll cut off your arm basically in right. front of 30 people. And I'm sure they like the challenge. And, right. you know, what that gets at is a couple of things, because McLean's casting is, is I think, excellent because she can play both cute and sympathetic and and also the, play the pathos exactly as as, as, she, as she should have. And they do say, like, oh, I chopped off my hair. You know, I wanted right. she wanted to be more, you know, maybe when she had longer hair, it was more overtly glamorous. Gotcha. But yeah. by cutting off the hair, it, it, it's, you know, becomes more interior and, and, and more about, you know, showing her face. Right. Um, and there's there's a thing in there because I'm curious about what you think about this. So she has basically said that she is only her whole life is I'm, I'm end up with these like married men and over and over and over and she just go back to it. So the movie we'll, we'll talk about the movie, you know, and the ending later, I guess. But I am curious what you think about whether she actually stays with Lemon, because I don't think that she does. I think she goes like I have this this viewpoint about uh about you know women in that era which is what were their options like uh they're either the loyal housewife who's the virgin when they get married or they're the they're they're the the office pass around which is i guess the the category that she's now fitting into and you can't un you can't go back from the pass around to the to the loyal virginal wife and the whole point is that the the men get bored of their virginal wives and then they want you know miss kubelik because Shirley McLean because oh well she's wild and she'll you know we, we can have fun just like all the other women like Shirley McLean is the only smart woman in the whole movie right everyone else is is either you know uh, dumb and ditzy or or they're they're trying to steal money or or like they're they're just you know out for the party they're, she doesn't, they don't have any honor and, and I think that's deliberate and like okay let's just make this one woman smart but she doesn't get rewarded for it she's self-aware but she doesn't get rewarded for it. There's that absolutely heartbreaking moment where, um, you know, obviously Frederick Murray hasn't given her, hasn't gotten her a gift and he hands her a hundred dollar bill. Oh, oh my God. I couldn't, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't. And then, and then she to starts to take off her dress and he goes, what are you doing? And he goes, she says, as long as it's paid for. Oh. 
I, I couldn't watch it. I actually had to look down. I was just embarrassed for humanity when yeah. when, when he started reaching for the, the wallet. And I was like, oh, my God, man. That, that, I feel embarrassed for in all of humanity at that yeah. moment. <laughs> but do you think that, that she's going to – I don't think she's going to stay with Lemon. And here's why I don't think that. Logically, she knows she should be with Lemon. And I'm not saying that Lemon's a good guy in this movie because he's an opportunist. Right. And he's also one of those proto nice guys in which I think he's 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 the proto incel in a way like I'm a really nice guy. You know, you should all like me uh, because the only time that Lemon's actually about to have sex is when is with the woman who's who's married to the jockey who's stuck in, in a Cuban prison um, uh, who he picks up at the bar. And he never looks at her once. Right. Um, it, can you play the clip of her of them dancing? Uh, dancing in the bar. Yeah. Yeah. You'll notice that they are dancing with each other and not looking with each other, looking at each other at all. And they're making no human connection, period. That's the sort of the extent of the clip. That sad guy was a was a guy. He's been in so many movies. Yeah. But yeah, I, I I got that right from the start. Like he wasn't looking at her when they were having dialogue at the bar too. He was looking right. straight ahead. And was- and there's this moment where she says. Like, like, and it, it's, it's the whole thing where he's only, she's only interested because he's paying no attention to her. He's, he's doing the, he's, he's doing what's called negging. Sort yeah. of. And, you know, she says to him, well, can I ask you a personal question? And he says, no. And then they go upstairs anyway. And they're obviously going to have sex before he finds Sherlyn McLean in the bedroom. And, um, but what, that's what I was asking. What I wanted to ask before, do you think, I don't honestly believe that she ends up with the Shirley McLean ends up with Jack Lemon. I think, you know, now that he's unemployed, he's going to lose that apartment. You know, she's she may be out of a job. She got to move back. You know, she got to go back to her brother-in-law, or whatever. And he's got to what move back to where uh, Poughkeepsie or something like that, wherever he's from. And then they have a relationship for a week before she realizes, hey, wait a minute, I'm not really attracted to him, even though I know that he's right and he saved me in the situation, and he kept me alive. We have no physical connection whatsoever, and I just feel, you know, there's nothing, there's no connection there. And plus she's still into bad boys, which he isn't. He might be, but he does, he doesn't believe it. Right. No, I don't believe they would. That's part of the sadness for me is, is, uh, at one, I feel sorry for Jack Lemon's character because again, he seems like a guy who has nobody. And I, I don't know anybody in my life who's ever had absolutely nobody and when i look at that lonely existence of you know all i have is my job that's all i have so i feel bad for him and i know he desperately uh he he he's taken with her. i can't see how he could really be in love with her but i think when she says you know shut up and deal to me that that's like an acknowledgement of that uh this is just for tonight i just feel like um i'd rather spend tonight with you but I don't see it going. I know I I don't see them having a life together. Of course not. She, but she does say, at one point in there, she says we'll send them a fruitcake every every Christmas, which kind of is hopeful for him anyway. Right. But I think it's only hopeful. I think I think this isn't really going anywhere. Which is, of course, you know, the the notion of that last line. You know what what Wilder always said was, you know, get in and out. Like once you get the last thing, you make the last point run the movie's over so right. that that last line or the last line in some like it hot which is you know nobody's perfect right. um the movie's over don't don't extend it another five minutes he's absolutely right in that way but it also made me think it started to make me think of you know one of the um 
considered classic uh, romantic comedies, and it's a movie I think is fantastic, but has a deceptive ending. Is called Say Anything, um, with yeah, John Cusack that, and Iona yeah. Sky. And Cusack spends the entire movie pining after this woman, and um, she finally sort of relents to going out with him, and then they they continue the relationship once John Mahoney's character, her father, like ends up in in prison, and. At the end of Say Anything, she um, they're on an airplane and she's scared and he's holding her hand. And what I always imagine is what happens after they land and she realizes their entire relationship is that he's obsessed with her and there's nothing else to it? Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere after that. It's, it's two weeks. It's no different than, than the Woody Allen relationship in Manhattan where she is more open about the fact like, oh, okay, like this isn't going to work once I move to London. Not that right. that's a healthy relationship, but you, it's the same idea. Well, you're you're bad. You're bad. You shouldn't. You're not supposed to think about what happens after the movie's over. You're just supposed to kind of accept that that's how it ends, and then uh, just assume a happier, happier rare. <laughs> I don't know. I always think of what what are the characters like outside of the things that we're seeing. Right. I know. I know. But I, uh, you think that that's the intent of uh, the writer director? Probably in your case. <laughs> I mean, I think of it that way. I I know that not everyone is is taking it in that fashion. And maybe that's the more analytical. I mean, when you titled this episode, you know, Adam and Dog, you know, ruin, ruin the movie, yeah. someone in a comment section said, oh, why are you going to ruin the movie? It's perfect, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I said, I don't think we're going to do it. But I think when you analyze something enough, as someone said to me, you, you do take the joy out of it in some sense. Well, that's right. That's I hope we're not taking the joy out of it completely. I hope this is helpful and useful information for people. Yeah, you, you know, I think it is. But uh, I, to your point about, I don't think I'm... You have to think about that. I think you feel it. My my overall feeling at the end of the movie is sadness. Even though it's a romantic comedy and that moment uh, at the very end of the movie is it's somewhat uh, visually uplifting. She's running up the stairs. She's got a big smile on herself. It's that Harry Met Sally ripoff uh, moment there where she's just running to him on New Year's Eve. Uh, and so it, that tends to start you to feel, okay, there, there is a happy ending here. But then when it happens, all I can take away from it is sadness. These are two very flawed people in a very dark world, and both are emblematic of loneliness both of them are and they're on a couch sitting a, a kind of apart mm -hmm. two lonely people and so wow man <laughs> yeah and especially because wilder shoots all those scenes where they're just in two shots they never get singles with each other they're always on these two shots so there is like this is the same this is the same this is never they're never close and that last shot plays out all in like maybe like the last minute and a half and then it's just over so right. you never have them embrace you never have anything like that you right. just have his calling out to her and her kind of half ignoring it. Yeah. And I and I wrote down um, when when exactly is she going to last American Virgin him, if you know what that means. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do. So, uh, um, yeah, and that never happened. The, the closest they ever get is in the, the office. And I wanted to ask you about this. And when, when at the Christmas party, um, it's revealed pretty quickly to me that, you know, the broken mirror thing. I think that... I was I remembered that it happened uh, when I was remembering the movie, but then watching the movie again, I thought, "Wow, that happens awfully quick after uh, you know the Fred Mc, uh, Murray where where Lemon shows I yeah I found this and it's got the crack in the mirror, and then when he has to 
uh, when Shirley MacLaine pulls it out and he's, he looks at it and says, oh, with the hat, that's what it mm-hmm. is. And it just seemed like it was too quick. Like that should be, there should be more space in there. So I you, don't know. I don't know where exactly you put it. Cause you want him to realize what's going on and have to deal with it without even necessarily, he has to process it on his own without her knowing what's going on. I think, I think the longer uh, Wilder talked about, um, uh, doing what he learned from Ernst Lubitsch is that you want to give the audience credit for them to be just ahead of the characters. So they can do, he said, called it two plus two equals four. Right. So once they have, they have a clue and the character has a clue, but we're ahead of it and we're just waiting for the character to catch up. And we, we, we have some satisfaction in that. And that's a perfect example of the two. Plus, you keep waiting for the mirror reveal and there it is. And, but that the both sides aren't aware of it, I think is actually, I think that's in the right spot, honestly. Okay. But you mentioned the bowler hat and, I wanted to show a picture. Um, so there's a whole setup for this. Um, uh, which one do I show the first? The one it's, that's it's an image. It's the, the one with the bowler hat. <laughs> so so this is a shot of Jack Lemon in the bowler hat, and he asks whether or not uh, it looks good on him. And, of course, it looks absurd. And part of the reason it looks absurd to us more now is because, as I see on the right there, Clockwork Orange uh, has taken over the notion of how you wear a bowler hat. So it makes it look like he's got eye makeup on, even if he, even if he doesn't. Okay. You get the idea of the shot, but what's interesting. And I, I don't know, uh, you can, you can get rid of the shot, Matt. Um, I, I don't know if it's helpful or not. So to the bowler hat is actually a punchline to a joke that has no setup. Um, originally there, there was a scene that they shot, but that was deleted out of the movie, uh, early on when he's, when he's in bed, when, um, Ray Walston calls him, and says, I want to bring the Marilyn Monroe type over. Right. He's he's reading. He first we see the electric blanket. We see the sleeping pills. This is in the script. You can read it online if you want to read the script. Um, and he's reading Playboy magazine. And in the Playboy magazine, it says, um, bowler hats, they're back. Um, and, and Wilder deleted the scene because he wanted to make Lemon more sympathetic and he thought he would make the whole thing too sleazy if it looked like he was reading Playboy magazine. In bed, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Even though he was reading it for the articles, literally for the articles. It would have been, it would have been, uh, good, served the movie well to see him do the sleeping pills. He does mention that he took a sleeping pill. Yes. He says, uh, I wasn't feeling well. I, I'm in bed already. And plus I took a sleeping pill, but you yes. know, it was So I, I, when, when he did that, I didn't need it again. So the fact that, that we get, we'd ha- we would have had it a third time. I don't know if it matters. Right. I mean, I had, I had enough. Did you need more setup for that? No, 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 no. But, no but, but, but how do you feel about a joke like that? The bowler hat with no setup. Do you think that I think it works anyway? Yeah, I thought it worked anyway. And the fact that he was, you know, tilting it and it didn't seem to fit right on his head made it right. funny. He, he just it's just Jack Lemon. It's a typical Jack Lemon um, scene. It's it's just like, oh yeah, this is. Oh, him. but regarding that, so so the only two, the only wise people in the whole movie are all Jews. Right. That seems very deliberate, like it's right out of the mouth of Billy Wilder. So there's right. the doctor, his wife, and the landlord. Right. And every all the Jews speak in heavily Yiddish language. Right. And that's like the key, you know, every the, the goal for the lemon is to be a mensch. Right. And and what is what is lemon but a schlemiel? And uh where 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 do they go? Some schnook's apartment. You know, <laughs> all of that. There's all of this, there's throughout the whole movie, there's Yiddish language, and that seems to be like the wise language. So it's like he's saying. You know the goys don't know what they're doing. Right. But there was a sneaky way of putting in the the subtext of making all of the smart and caring characters Jewish. Right. Well, uh, the thing I was a little bit surprised by that the, the Jewish doctor lived in a, an apartment that's you know 
with the guy who makes $94 a week, it's the same kind of apartment. I would think a, a Jewish doctor in Manhattan, <laughs> even in 1960 would, ha- would have a little more. Uh, well, if he's, if he's, if he's doing the house call stuff, he's not, he's not particularly upscale. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's true. And he was doing house call stuff. You yeah. see him coming back from one. That was a surprise to me, but it's, you know, with the stereotypical stuff, I think he did say uh, a little bit to stereotypes. Again, I think, you know, the, uh, the, the black, um, janitors the black shoeshine guy the jewish doctor the the women all you know either secretaries or um elevator operators i thought he he was pretty stereo stereotypical which you wouldn't expect from a guy who was um necessarily a victim of uh over stereotyping (laughs) for those of you who watch this and don't have any idea when i said last american virgining him that is a a uh a teen exploitation movie from the early eighties in which the main character romances a, a girl who is pregnant with his friend's kid. And then he, the, uh, the main character helps her through the abortion, pays for the abortion, gets a job. And then he's, he may, he's like, you know, he thinks that she, they're in love. And then even after the, uh, her, his friend didn't pay for the abortion, she goes back to him at the end anyway. And it's a real gut punch yeah. of a, of a movie in which is mostly pretty generic exploitation, you know, uh, what's called a boob delivery service. (laughs) Um, So those of you who don't know that, but you had mentioned Fred McMurray and and the casting of him in this is kind of, to me played like, because he'd been the astronaut professor is basically what Kurt Russell did by being snake Plissken Um, or, or in used cars, which is, I want to throw away my Disney past and be taken a little bit more seriously and play like either a hero, an anti-hero or just a flat out villain. Right. And if you think about like Kurt Russell's, you know, career to that point, but besides being Elvis in a John Carpenter, uh, uh, biopic of Elvis, but he'd been in like the computer wore tennis shoes and a barefoot executive and all that stuff. And I think he'd been playing minor league baseball for a couple of years for his dad's team. Um, but that that was a revolution, and he he because he cast all of these these TV actors as the boss. Like my favorite Martian and Larry Tate from Bewitched, and and like the great Gildersleeve and all this stuff. And you and and you and I I don't know whether that hurts or helps the movie that those guys played a little bit more broad because they're they're really just TV actors. You think well, that helps or hurts? The thing that strikes me about Walston is he. he, he... He he only played exactly every role he played. He was exactly the same in in the the apartment. He's still playing uh, damn Yankees. He's still the devil uh, with, <laughs> with the cigar. He's still that same guy, and he's he's still Mister Hand in a way. From <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he, he just doesn't change. Ray, Ray Walston, but he seemed to have he seemed to like Ray Walston a lot. And I don't know if it, you know directors do tend to use the same actors over and over again. But right, seemed- Walston, Walston's the lead in Kiss Me Stupid, and he's right. very broad and not very good in that. Yeah. Uh, but he was the replacement for um, Peter Sellers. Right, wow. In, in, in uh, Kiss Me Stupid. Wow. But, uh, Peter Sellers had had a heart attack um, trying literally to invent new sexual positions <laughs> with his wife, with his Brett, wife, Britt Eklund, and... Um, Wow, and uh, he was taking, I guess, poppers, and he had he had six heart attacks in three hours, according to what I, <laughs> I don't know. He didn't die then, but yeah. Um, I have a newfound respect for Peter. <laughs> he was a he was a horrible man, but he was experiment, I guess. <laughs> um, so do you do you think that that Lemon in this case is a is a a good man or just an opportunist? 
I think he has a good heart. I but again, it, it troubles me that he's such a, he's so alone that I, whenever I see somebody who's so alone like that, I think there's got to be a dark side. Why is he? Why does he have anybody who loves him? Why doesn't he have anybody he in his life that he cares about? And for so it's 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 he's a complicated guy, but he does seem to have a good heart. But you know the stuff where he's he's tucking her in, making sure the electric blanket's plugged in, making sure she's on there. Uh, that is a fatherly and a caring type of guy type of attitude. Where Fred McMurray would never, his character would never be tucking her in like that when she was asleep so that to me says he's got a good heart but at some point the 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 fact that he's so alone and so isolated tells me there's something dark and sinister about him somewhere that you know everybody's got a friend why doesn't he have a friend <laughs> now, do you do you have that clip uh that i sent you via facebook of the uh the apartment where someone is digitally removed no i don't uh oh, it's okay it's a it's a movie clip m-u-b-i clip someone is digitally removed so you get a sense of the noir apartment um, right i'm gonna see if i can get it while while we continue oh, okay all right so um i guess i could could go on i mean i'm gonna throw something out there that you're happy you feel free to disagree with do you think the casting of uh fred mcmurray's wife shell drake's wife um the fact that she looks a lot like jane wyman is some sort of weird dig at ronald reagan um, I didn't occur to me at the time, but yeah, it's possible. Sure. <laughs> um, so we, I think we're on the same page in, in, in that we think eventually Jack Lemon gets friend zoned, right? Oh, I don't even think it takes too long. I think, um, uh, you know, I think it's that what we see at the end of the movie is just one night it's one night of uh let's comfort each other because we're both lonely sons of bitches we're gonna play cards on new year's eve where other people are partying together we're two lonely people spending new year's eve together and tomorrow uh you're gonna be looking for a job in another city and i'm gonna be looking for help from family and so yeah i think that's it that night is it yeah i think i'm I'm with you on that um i don't know whether why, why you're looking – I guess I could discuss influences because one of the main influences is obviously on something like Mad Men. But I think about um, uh, a film called In the Company of Men, a Neil LeBute film. Um, and if you can't find that clip, don't don't worry about it. Um, I, I will, You got it? Uh, yeah, just give me one second to pull it up here on YouTube because it's, I'm going to play it from YouTube and I can bring down the sound if I do this. So, okay. Um, yeah, so now I got to go back over here and go share screen, Chrome tab, YouTube, and come back over here and go like this, and then go like this. Perfect. Okay. Okay. So someone, what they've done here is, I think, remarkable, is that they have just shown us the inside of the apartment um, with all the people taken out, and this is the advantage of having Wilder do these long shots with just without the camera moving, without showing off. So you can see, so this is what the movie is like if you didn't have any people. So look how lonely and dark this apartment is. Yeah. This, he, he shot this like a noir, absolutely like that. So you would feel the loneliness and ice. Look at that shot. Yeah, um, the, Chris, the Christmas tree being with the Charlie Brown Christmas tree before Charlie Brown came out with it. It's definitely lonely. <laughs> yeah. So someone is, as I said, 
there were characters in these scenes, but they had just literally digitally removed them. And you could see the water turning on there in the sink and the light coming on. It gets a little un uh, unnerving. Um, uh, I hope everyone, yeah, that's probably enough because this goes on for that, another like, two minutes. That yeah, that reminds me of another problem I have with the, the script, the TV dinner. Uh, not the script. Well, but it's clear that he can't cook. I mean, he, you know, he makes right, pasta with the tennis the racket. The continuity of the moment, you see him, and, and, and because it's shot in that, uh, you know, continuous shoot, uh, type of thing. He, you see him in the kitchen putting the TV dinner in. Then he goes uh, and he does a couple of other things around the apartment. They follow him back, and like two minutes later, not even two minutes later, the, the <laughs> TV dinner is done, and it's just like you know they that should have been a, a cutaway or something. They because it had to. You have to at least give the impression that it was forty minutes or something, and that thing would take the heat up, not just two minutes. And it takes it out, and it's already like streaming hot. He can't touch it. And you've seen it. It just happens that quick. I mean, if you watch it again, you'll say, why? Well, yeah, he's right there. The continuity or just the, the timing of but you, it. I mean, you can't you can't have him show like 40 minutes. Past. No, no. Be, you have to have some indication of that. Like either he sat there and the clock goes around or any kind of, you know, give him some time passed before. Because it seemed like right, if you were watching me right now and I turned over here, put the thing in, and I went over here, typed something, and okay, it's done, like you'd say, wait a minute. That right, because it wasn't done. wasn't microwaved or anything. Right. And, we didn't, take... and we didn't cut away to anything. Like it was one continuous shot. It just seemed weird that it was ready that quick. What, if, while we're still talking about the apartment, there was, there was a, there's a scene like in the bedroom that I have uh, that, I, that I sent you. Uh... Inside the apartment playing Where they're cards. playing cards, yeah. Playing cards, yeah. That's the end of the movie. The, well, no, it's not. It's 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 my favorite bit in the movie. Okay. Um, it's when they're first playing gin rummy, and she she says, I'm, I'm terrible at it. And he's he, it's a perfect bit because he's so competitive that he's like, I want to win with this person who doesn't isn't good at this, and my brain doesn't work. Right. Uh, and her brain doesn't work. And is that there's an absolutely this is a, exactly how he, he nails the tone because this is a scene that should be completely sad. And he is so convincingly goofy. There's a moment here where he, and uh, uh, you can you can put it on, and I'll I'll, I'll describe yeah, where, it. Where he where he doesn't look at her, and what's... and he's he's like he's like showing off, and he's like counting up, and he doesn't even know. For one thing, you can't spell. Secondly, if you did something like unmute that, yourself. Oh yeah, I did. I did it. I don't like myself very much. Anyway. I also like the framing here. Normally, you you have uh, framing that was a little bit more safe in the middle for television, right. um, and then they're sort of at the edges of the frame. And obviously, she's not paying any attention, and he's so competitive that he doesn't even. He's like, "You want to throw that out? Because I've got gin." And think about the context of this scene. She's thinking, you know, he's yeah. worried so much that she's going to kill herself again that later he like pulls the razor out of his own. Um, he pulls the blade out of his own razor, and he doesn't even know that she's she's dead asleep. He's still going, <laughs> and he goes blitz two games. And how long does it take to notice? As it still hasn't looked up. He plays is perfect. He yeah, plays absolutely perfect the way he yep. looks up. And it, it, what, what did that take? Another 30, 40 seconds after she's already been asleep? Right. I mean, that's a, that, that is how you nail the tone because how do you make that so effortless where something is terribly depressing on the surface, but here is his obliviousness and his sort of childish competitive 
nature, which is revealed earlier a little bit when he makes that dollar bet with the guy who says, I'm moving up the ladder. Right. I think that's a great setup in a subtle way to get to that point, which is why when Trillin McLean said, oh, I only had up to page 29, they were still writing. I'm like, I don't know. They, they, they may shoot. I mean, Wilder claimed that he shot like shoot chronologically so he could develop it. But there's no way that you can anticipate all of this stuff. You can only shoot chronologically if you shoot on a set the entire time. You could never do that if you you're shooting a location because, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to, to, to plan the location. Oh, I'm going to need this location for this scene here, this scene here. Only if you could go back to different places on the, on the studio set over and over could you ever shoot chronologically. It I would can't be a- anybody shooting chronologically anymore. It just doesn't happen. There's no reason. No. <laughs> well, no, there's a good reason to do it. Why? Um, because it helps the, the actors build the character over time so they know where they are. Because there's, you know, an actor uh, needs to know that. that if they're just dropped into a scene, oh, we're shooting these three scenes to get today, and they're totally different emotions, and we're going to go from one, just because it's all the same location, you know, they're going to be a little lost, or they've got to do a different kind of prep. But if they could do it chronologically as their character builds, I think that would be an advantage. An advantage. You're looking down. Are you getting some questions or something? Oh, no, I just, uh, there were people who were in the chat room, but they were not pertinent. They were uh, spammers trying to get me to, uh, by promotionals. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, I had when you were looking for that thing, I was started to talk about um, In the Company of Men, which are you familiar with that film? No. Okay, so that's a Neil LeBute film with Aaron Eckhart and Matt Malloy, and it's about two guys who are tired of how women treat them, and they're going to pick on a woman. Uh, they're going to go, they're going on a business trip for six weeks. And they're going to find one woman. They're going to date her at the same time. And then they're going to pull the rug out from under her. Um, and they pick on a deaf woman. Um, and it's Neil Butte's first film. And if you know his history, it's kind of like misanthropic. But it's a brilliant satire of corporate culture. And it's one of the nastiest and, and meanest movies ever made. And uh, it's not for everyone. I think it's great, but I'm aware it's not for everyone. But it's very obvious that the apartment is very influential on it. And it's while obvious to say that, like, you know, Mad Men is not possible without the apartment. I think, I think in the company of men with its view of corporate culture and um, how people relate to each other is, is similar. In fact, what I've given you is a clip from in the company of men. Right. Before, to, yeah, go ahead. Before I play it, just comment on what you just said. Cause uh, you said the Mad Men is not possible w- without the apartment. I know people who are, avid i mean fanatical about madmen who are just uh culturally unhip and probably don't know the, the apartment even exists so what do you mean by that that uh couldn't exist you mean the, it wouldn't have been made without it the the people who made it were influenced by it or do i think you- that, i think it's pretty obvious how influenced now i'm not saying that like another great show in a similar milieu wouldn't be possible i'm just saying you know the the set design, the way the characters behave, all that stuff. Now, obviously, they're portraying an era, but I'm just saying that this <clears throat> that the apartment nails the era so specifically that it would be impossible to avoid the gotcha. comparison, and also that the influence is so so clear. And right. and and I think um, the guy who created the show, Matthew, I can't remember his last name, Wiener, he has said how 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 influential the apartment was on him. Besides the dialogue I mentioned earlier, where they talk about it. All right, I'm going to play the clip. Get ready to unmute yourself. Yep. I had heard that it was sort of a... So this is from the commentary. State building. 
and it was built in like 1929 or 30. Okay. It's called the Lincoln Tower. So this is Neil Labute, the director, talking. It's Aaron Eckhart is also talking. That's where the so this, so in this case, what you see is that was cut out. Right so they're talking about the location, but I'll just stop for one second. First floor and the second floor were, were uh, bank, uh, former I think it was Norwest Bank that had been in there, and they had since moved out. And these were all of their office suites. This was, ironically, the trust department. We always thought that was kind of lovely. <laughs> I wanted to get, in fact, I wanted to get a, a shot of that, but we never, we never threw that in. But um, these were the main offices, and, and so many locations were pulled. The bank, obviously, at the end of the film that Howard goes to, but what else came out of there? Uh, the men's room. The top of the building. The top of the building came out of there, certainly. Even uh, Chad's apartment, which we'll see mm -hmm. at the end of the film. Um, the bank manager's office had a fireplace in it and we just literally redid it to make it look like um, his apartment so all of these this just had a great look you know I really loved uh, the apartment um, the Billy Wilder film you know and I just there, nothing that we saw quite had this great sort of glass and, and Venetian blinds and Tony sort of lit the movie for black and white and we got a lot of great shadows because you originally wanted the movie in black. I wanted it in black and white. I, I did. It was only with some convincing on your part that that we went for the uh, the other. Well, and the fact that we couldn't afford to even transfer the film into black and white by the time we premiered right. at Sundance. How did you feel? Very fine. terrible. My dog like, ate those. So then I cut to this scene here <laughs> where <laughs> Neil Abute points out this is something important. This is a dog implant in Hollywood. Well, I'm going to stuff him. Yeah, why not? Um, there you go. Classic Americana, like when people come, you know, say it's great minimalism, mm -hmm. all one take, you know, Edward, Edward Hopper. Yeah, exactly, Edward Hopper. Situation could be it's timeless. Yeah, Philip Perlstein drawing. Well, it's, you know, you mm -hmm. look at look at the American businessman in the last fifty years. I mean, the look hasn't changed, it hasn't deviated that greatly. That's a that's a classic a look more right hats, there. But that's about it. Yeah. Okay. Now, what they're saying there is obviously it was influenced by the apartment, the see-through glass, the Venetian blinds, and all that stuff, but that they wanted to shoot black and white, and then just the way that the corporate look, plus how long those shots are, is very key. And that he says later, and that's obviously the audio commentary from the DVD, but um, that they say that, that you know the look of the American businessman hasn't changed in 50 years. Now, that movie was made in 1997, so we are assuming that that's how much like everything is still the same from what it was 1960. Right. But even earlier than that, um, you were going to say something. Sorry. I just wondering, in, uh, according uh, along the lines of the look of the American businessman hasn't changed. As uh, as he was saying that, I'm thinking about the culture that is uh, portrayed in both the apartment and in the company of men of that, um, you know, this. Well, the toxic masculinity. Yeah, the I mean, toxic it's, masculinity. It's, un it's unavoidable. We 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 have skimmed over it, but. There's no way to to not acknowledge that that's what the apartment right. and absolutely in the company of men is about. And so all the, I'm thinking that all these women—it's I'm getting too deep here, obviously. All these women who work in that thirty thousand employee insurance mm -hmm. company—they're all somebody's wife at the end of the day, or girlfriend. Or they're all going to end up getting married. And so, how does that woman allow her husband to go off to work if if this is an honest portrayal of how things were in in the in the completely masculine dominated workspace of office environments, and that. That every guy is hitting on every secretary and every elevated girl and every girl in the cafeteria and all that stuff and they know this how do women go back to be a housewife and and in, in the suburbs knowing their husband is going off to that office he's the same guy 
I met when I was the office girl. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you notice in the apartment that no woman has a job of any real power, of course. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so there was before, you know, women's lib and it was before uh, women started to become, uh, you know, uh, promotable and vice presidents. And of course, they're still not CEOs in most cases. But it, it's so, it, yeah, it's, it, it just strikes me as how much we've changed. So we have progressed. A lot, if that is an accurate depiction of 1960. I was uh, five years old. I was one year old in 1960. So um, I don't know what if that's a true portrayal, but I'm assuming it's pretty close. Yeah, I mean, you have to make the assumption that it's at least a reflection of what either Wilder saw or knew that he was just developing this idea of this is how these guys are going to behave. And I guess it's great that it's kind of uncompromising that you you don't have to have some not neither is there like a great comeuppance for either of the guys either like fred mcgory gets divorced and has to stay at the y but you know considering what he's done i mean that's not really all that bad no, and it's not permanent he's at the y is just a a hold of it till he can get a really cool apartment and he says i'm gonna enjoy being a bachelor for a while right. like he, he doesn't feel punished he feels like liberated in a right little, exactly too cowardly to to step out on his own <laughs> I mean, all the all the the bosses are scumbags in like all these amusing ways, like right from the beginning. That right. you laugh, but you feel like at least that opening line where someone says, uh, "You know, well, I'm a happily married man." You know, as right. yeah, I or or uh, don't worry about the old lady. One squawk out of her, and she's out of a job. Right. And, and Ray Walston was playing yeah. the devil when Marilyn, when his Marilyn Monroe wannabe came up and said, "Who are you talking to?" My mother. Yeah. Yeah, but it, right away I thought oh, he's he's back to you know damn Yankees. He's playing the devil again. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but I, I I definitely wonder how historically accurate this is uh, about the culture of the time, and it, it's hard to believe it was that open. And but Mad Men kind of portrays it as that too. It's just like not a secret at all that if you were an, an executive, you were expected to chase. You have to be banging your secretary, or at least some menial woman who worked at the company, whether it's a secretary or, you know, receptionist or whatever she was. But you're expected to be chased. That was like part of the culture. Strange, but not that way. While Mad Men is an obvious influence, one of the other movies I wanted to talk about was was a little lighter in tone. It's called The Baxter, um, which is obviously a reference to C.C. Baxter, uh, which is Jack Lemmon's character. And um, it's with uh, Michael Showalter, and uh, he wrote and directed it. And um, the premise of the movie is that there's always a guy in any one of these movies who's always left, you know, like someone, there's a marriage is stopped at the altar. And who's the guy? What about the guy who's who's left at the altar for for the actual romantic couple? So the Baxter's about that guy. And so uh, in this this image here I've put together is Shirley MacLaine on the left, and then Michelle Williams, who's the love interest, in um, the Baxter and her character name is uh, something like CC Mills, you know, Cecil B. Cecil B. DeMille, but CC Baxter, CC Mills. And she's obviously got the same haircut as Shirley MacLaine. Um, but the Baxter is a little bit more lighthearted and just like Michael Showalter's other material that he's done, um, like he worked on, he was in the state. So he worked on Wet Hot American Summer um, so it's a little bit more parody and they came together, which is a parody or overt parody romantic comedies. Um, but the, the Baxter is a much more gentle movie in which, uh, it's, as I said, half parody, half sincere romantic comedy 
in which it's an interesting idea because um, the whole point is that Michael Showalter is a narrative black hole um, and that he is not charming. And that's why he does not end up with uh, the, the woman of his dreams in that case played by Elizabeth Banks um, and ends up with Michelle Williams because, because he doesn't see what's in front of him. Who's someone who's more connected as opposed to, you know, the, the hot blonde who, you know, who's it's always in any of these kinds of movies. It's you you should be the hot blonde is the distraction, but the, the more mousy, you know, brunette is really who you should be looking at in, in all these situations. It's kind of like half a parody of that. Um, but just like in the apartment, um, his girlfriend shows much more interest in him once he gets beaten up. Um, in fact, there's a, in, in the apartment, he gets, he gets punched in the nose and says, are you doctor? Cause are you okay? And he's like, doesn't hurt a bit. And in the Baxter, what happens is um, he gets, uh, there's a break dancing off between uh, Michael Showalter and Justin Theroux, who's very funny as, as uh, Elizabeth Banks' ex-boyfriend. And he accidentally gets kicked in the face. And then Elizabeth Banks says, oh no, oh, so sorry, you got hurt. And so there's this, all these interesting parallels. So the Baxter is in its own way what I was talking about before. The guy who'd be an extra in another movie gets his own project. But at least he's like, you know, he's the Bill Pullman character in... Uh, uh, what's a, a sleeps in Seattle or singles or any of that stuff in right. which the toss off guy. And it's, it's, it, I, I recommend the movie is sweet. Um, Peter Dinklage is hilarious in his one major scene. Uh, Paul Rudd makes an appearance. Justin Theroux is very funny. Uh, wow. It's like half, half parody, half serious. Um, so as long as you don't go in with like extraordinarily high expectations, you'll, you'll have a good time with it, but it's at least not the dark side of what the apartment is while obviously being, you know, influenced, hence being called the Baxter and having characters named, you know, CC and stuff like that. Uh, in the, uh, you mentioned before that Spartacus came out at the same year, which uh, is surprising to me because when watching the Academy Award clip for best picture, Spartacus wasn't one of the ones that was nominated. But the the ones that what there was uh, that was up against some pretty amazing. What's that? What's that like? Exodus is that is that that year? Alma yeah. Gantry. Alma Gantry, yeah. yeah. The whole uh, all five of them. I forget what they were now, but when she said them, I was like, "Holy crap!" That was some year for movies that uh, you know. But how many? The, the question is, how many uh, directors, modern day directors, or people who've made movies since 1960 have been influenced by by this movie? Because I mentioned uh, Harry Metzelli. I, I think Rob Reiner definitely stole that last scene from the 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 look of. Uh, you know the the running on the street at New at New right, Year. Right, right. Uh, how many? That, that became a big, big old cliche by that point. Right. Yeah. But how many people do you think are are influ- How many directors, modern day directors, are influenced by Wilder's work? Oh, almost all of them, whether they know it or not. Um, but any any farce, any. I mean, he he made tragedies. He made noirs. He made you know every every kind of movie. Uh, he made, you know, introspective dramas like, you know, Private Lives of Sherlock Holmes. Um, that's, you know, a bit more fanciful, but um, or or The Lost Weekend and and every every conceivable way. I think that his can his consistency early in his career was kind of remarkable. I mean, he he didn't. It's it's one of those things where like, oh, the Oscars are overrated. Not with him. I think that the fact that he might have more than anybody else, apart from like people who did makeup, like you know Stan Winston or Rick Baker, might have like fifteen Oscars. But that's where you're only competing against you know, a handful of other major makeup guys um, where I think all of his were probably pretty deserved. At least the ones of the ones I watched, you know, probably seen like, you know, 20 of his films or so. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think they're all probably influenced whether they whether they know it or not. Um, uh. it, it's hard. I wish that other people could be more efficient because just to try to imagine any director doing that scene that I showed that I showed you showed the clip of earlier, uh, where the, the one the one shot, yeah, yeah. Just imagine anybody doing that. Just imagine anyone having the patience to like, oh, I got to cut to a close up. Oh, I gotta, I gotta, uh, you know, show what that person's thinking or what they're looking at, or cut to an insert shot. He just wasn't doing that, right. and it's just giving the audience a lot of credit, which which doesn't happen anymore, uh, where everything has to be like. I'm going to give you everything and it's going to be all the time and it's going to be a thousand cuts. And that's not a good for the attention span, but also, you know, you, because, and you mentioned this earlier that you thought that ACE in the hole might be a little slow pace for today and I, for, for today's audiences. And I see your point, but I think that if you have just a bit of patience, you'll get sucked in and not even realize it. Cause he's, he's so tricky. Like you start just the moment you think you're about to get bored is when the twist comes in Yeah, and, and and it's it's almost immediate. It happens in every one of his movies because, you know, honestly, Double Indemnity plays like a black comedy about half the time. Yeah. And <laughs> and uh, and and a lot of his stuff does that. And you're like, how are you managing to keep this where it's still suspenseful? Um, because I watched um, uh, Body Heat not long ago, and I didn't think, which is a sort of an impression of uh, of Double Indemnity in a lot of ways, and I didn't think it handled the the transitions and tones very well. And then they threw the 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 central mystery is not that interesting. And I know that that probably has more of a, a influence based on the more uh, frank sexual nature of the of the of the sex scenes, but in terms of what what is today, but it's really just kind of like almost like a half parody in a way that doesn't you know doesn't focus enough on the 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 the, the second level scenes enough. Like where I don't care about what the main plot is eventually at all because it's just kind of rote and predictable. Yeah, I don't remember that movie finally at all. What I remember about that is uh, what's his name, uh, the Cheers guy. Uh, yeah, just, Ted Danson is good and Mickey Rourke's good in it. Yeah, and and that's that's I mean that's really all I can remember. I mean I'd have to really watch it again, and I don't want to watch it again. No, I, mean, <laughs> I watched it a couple months ago, and I thought eh, it's it's okay, yeah. but. You know, every time I get into, I, I think that I'm going to re-enjoy it, and I, I don't. I mean, in terms of the, you know, what we think of as a neo noir that was influenced by something by Double Indemnity, I don't, I don't think a movie like Last Seduction, which is a masterpiece, is possible without something like that, in which it's kind of mean and nasty, and then the twists are logical. But even if you don't care about the plot, you're still with the characters, and it's sort of darkly funny. And that's that's what I think that he perfected is is how to have like a serious movie with a dark comedy have that under underling and then still i mean lemon is absolutely perfect for this movie specifically because he does all that stuff that's so loud. i think i mentioned the suicide description earlier but that is really a marvel of acting because how are you doing that without us feeling terribly sorry for you or just being depressed how are you making that funny yeah uh, how are you making that story which should be like awful but making it funny i don't know um that's why that balance of tones thing is so difficult yeah, I think that's perfect casting because I don't think any other. I can't imagine any other uh, actor that I can think of really making that scene work, where he's just kind of uh, talking to somebody about her greatest heartache and then trying to explain how he's been there and he actually bought a gun and you know all that stuff, but still make it like, well, this is kind of cute and funny and in right. a way. It, I can't imagine any other actor pulling that off. Yeah, because how could you have this much suicide stuff in a movie in which he's also straining spaghetti on a tennis racket, and you don't think it's like, hey, this is this is disjointed. Right. You don't. It never occurs to you. I mean, the only person to ever match this, you know, tone wise, is Jonathan Demme. Anyway, 
um, in terms of flipping between tragedy and farce and all that kind of stuff. With specifically, I think of something wild um, uh, with Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith and Ray Liotta in terms of going from sex comedy to dark comedy to thriller back to silly, back back and forth, back and forth in the same movie, just seamless. Uh, but most of the time, you will never, uh, at least an American movie, will not flip flop. Uh, the, the the South Korean movies manage it. Something like Parasite absolutely nails how to go from. I don't know if you got it. If you saw that, I don't know it. Parasite won Best Picture last year. I I don't go to movies anymore. I don't I don't leave the house. I haven't. <laughs> no, I don't know. Okay, it. no, it's a great film. Uh, won Best Picture. Uh, uh, in you know, uh, for twenty nineteen films in twenty twenty, and a pandemic movie Parasite. No, it's not a pandemic movie. It's a it's a black comedy about uh, a family that kind of takes over a poor family that takes over a rich family's house. Oh, okay. Um, and the way that director who made Snowpiercer and you know other other films and the host manages to juggle the tones is 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 nothing short of astonishing because you can't even understand like how are you going how are you going from like silly to serious to you know pitch black thriller to horror to back to satirical without without you know hurting us with the whiplash. But only Wilder, I'd say, in America was able to to balance that, you know, time and time again. I, I'm lucky. I know the apartment, which is a 61 year old film now. Uh, right. <laughs> last year's Academy Award winner. I, I can honestly tell you, I don't think I've seen any of the top movies from the last 10 years. Not one of them. Any of any top nominated movie in the last 10 years, I haven't seen. But you can mostly skip that. But that that and Moonlight are two of the most recent Best Picture winners that are utterly deserved, uh, in which they are small, powerful movies that would never normally get attention, right? Um, as, as opposed to the kind of milk toast, uh, you know, Green Book kind of thing, where, where it's just like let's let's coddle the audiences. Neither of those movies do that, and I, I think it's great that they were rewarded. More people see that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I realize uh, we've we've now talked for 97 minutes <laughs> about the apartment. We've killed it enough. I I, I think so. I, I I'm, hope I'm you give the uh, uh, apartment a solid thumbs up with a, a kind of this kind of look at it because I I thoroughly enjoyed the movie, but I got to you know when I walk away from it, uh, and you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> spoiler alert for a 61 year old movie. Uh, you end- spoiled it already. You go ahead. Yeah, the ending is just sad for me, and so I don't like I don't like that uh, feeling when I walk away from something and I think, uh, "Wow, that's kind of a little bit depressing." It's going to take me. I need to kind of not think about this. It does stay with you. It's a movie that you think about, but I don't like the feeling that I walked away from it, even though I enjoyed watching the movie. If that makes any sense at all. Well, but I, I think I think walking away with it, that sadness means that the movie's worked. You know, the worst thing you can do is walk away from something and never think about it again. Right. Yeah. But and I don't so, like the feeling that I, I have. I get it. I, oh, I, okay. I do think it works. I just don't like feeling like that. Like now, I feel bad for both of them. Uh, I, I, I would I, feel I would feel less bad for Jack Lemon because there there's an element to the movie we didn't discuss, which is he's kind of a creep. And there's there's a moment where she he reveals that he like looked up all her personal information, right, and you're it. like, Ugh, I wish. I, most, I wish that hadn't been a plot point. Most chicks, uh, uh, most women, <laughs> uh, if they heard that, would run, would run away right away. Yeah. That this guy's a, a, a creeper. Well, right? he's, he committed a crime. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the thing that really struck at me, he said, I know your social security number. Like, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> 
so that that tells you that maybe she doesn't have a lot of options and so that he that's why he, he would obviously be friend zone and you get that feeling of what 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 do women do in that situation like how do they make themselves safe while not being a, a target at the same time right. it's a weird balance to carry off yeah. And so I don't mind that that scene's in the movie, but I think it tells you who Jack Lemmon is, that he thinks that's okay. Yeah, and I, I think that if, if we're talking about perfect script, in a perfect script, she would have at least acknowledged that that's a little bit creepy. Uh, and she she didn't, she basically seemed almost, com- uh, you know, uh, complimented by it or or somehow thinking that... I think well, she was throwing him off, because remember, there's an, right after that scene, there's a key moment, which is one of the reasons I think that that they don't end up together after the movie's over, where she's having that that date with the Chinese restaurant with Red McMurray, and she's he's she says you have somewhere he you you have he's he says I she says I have a date, and he says is it is it important? She says no, but I'm gonna go anyway. Oh yeah, and I and, and I that line continued in my head throughout the rest of the movie. Like right, that's really what she thinks of him. Right. Like nothing that's changed apart from the suicide attempt, and he took care of her. You know, we're we're not necessarily getting a Florence Nightingale moment here, anyway. Right. Um, so there, there, there is the element of like that's as close as they really get is like she she is deflecting his flirting in the elevator in, in the first place, and so she's just used to deflecting, and so maybe that bit of overt creepiness is, just stayed in her mind. Right. You know, that, that was my I, I, when she did say, "Why can't I ever fall in love with a guy like you?" Right. Yeah, and that that in itself is a sad statement. It feels like you know what, uh, um, basically, there's no hope for him at that point, and that that's what, what registered me. You should know that that means you're in the friend zone forever. Right. Uh, that should a thought should occur to you, but I don't think it did in, to him until um, Fred McMurray told him you know he was leaving his wife for her and all that stuff. Right. But then he becomes supportive of that relationship in some way, like you know. Which, in some level, he is a good guy. Complicated. Maybe. Um, I, I don't know how many levels you can, like, if you had a TV show based on the apartment, you could <laughs> you could develop it more. But I wouldn't I wouldn't want to go spend more time with this because the, the bosses would become too much of a cartoon, I think. Right. Well, I hope we we sufficiently ruined the movie for a lot of people. Uh, but I, I do hope people will watch it and, and enjoy the movie for what it is. And, and right. I, I would assume they would have had to have seen to understand most of what we were saying anyway. Uh, you know what? I would... I would ask. I'm going to ask that. You know, I want to hear in the, in the uh, viewer mail and the listener mail. Let let me know if you you're all that familiar with the movie because I think film students like you, people who study film, sure they're into it. Uh, older people my age, maybe. But I guarantee you, Michael Shane never saw this movie and doesn't know it. What the fuck we're talking about? <laughs> okay. And and he's not. You know, I I bring him up because he's not um that unusual i think there are a lot of people like him well, but i i chose this movie because i thought of it as sort of a forgotten best picture a great movie that that stands the test of time in a lot of ways but has not had the overt cultural impact of something like some like hot like one of his other movies or double indemnity even right. though i think it's better than both of those films um right. uh so I, that's why i was like let's discuss a thing that has not been analyzed to death in this way cool all right. Well, I appreciate it. I hope we did some. We we did something good tonight. If you want and to, try- I, and I give. I know you had one crooked thumb. I give it three extra thumbs up, um, to compensate for your one crooked thumb. Okay. Cool. <laughs>
<laughs> well, that's our our uh, taking a part of the apartment. I hope you folks enjoyed it. I hope uh, you know you let let us know in the uh, viewer mail info at minddogtv.com, listener mail info at minddogtv.com, and perhaps we'll do this again next month if we can uh, figure out a good film to to rip apart for another month. But okay, uh, a- a- any final thoughts before we say goodnight? Um, no. Um, uh, yeah, I hope you go and enjoy as many Billy Wilder movies as you can. Cool. Uh, in the meantime. All right. Thanks for coming, folks, and bye for now. No no sponsors tonight. By the way, join up, uh, sign up for the Patreon page. I will put that link in the description. And bye for now.
to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. 